I, I just want to encourage you because I think the over, overarching sense of what I think God is saying to us as a church is, I've got this. Okay, I've got this. Thank you that you were able to pray for May. Some of us this last week or so have been praying for the boiler at Unit 11 because it broke down and it was shut off and we were, we've been in there in the freezing cold, uh, Linda and I, uh, and other groups as well. But hallelujah, it's been uncondemned, as it were. And uh, isn't that just the message of what Jesus does? Takes the condemned and sets us free. And so we were lovely and warm on Friday morning for our prayer breakfast. <coughs> I hope you ladies were warm as well. But so many other situations. God's got this. And I want to really see that. And, and in a sense, what I'm... the, the, the the two churches from Revelation, so please do turn to Revelations 2, chapter 8. The two churches from Revelations I've got to talk about today are, it could feel a bit heavy, it could feel a bit harsh, but do you know what? God is saying in this, I've got this, and do you know what? You have got all you need to overcome. Um, it's interesting we're in Revelations, and, and a couple of people have said to me, I've been really encouraged to read Revelations again. And this last week I went into a school and spoke to a class of year, uh, what are they, sixes? Yeah, year sixes, about what happens after we die. There's, there's a challenge. Thankfully they gave me questions to, to answer, so, um, and they didn't ask me live questions at the time, which would have been even more challenging. But that led me again to think about, well, what do I really believe about what happens? Because it wasn't a case of, I'll ask you a simple biblical question. It was a question, you know, kind of difficult ones like, well, will we have the same bodies? And if we're ill in this life, what will our bodies be like when we die? Uh, and my encouragement is, I, there's, I've got no biblical evidence for this whatsoever. I think I'm going to be 35, okay? Because God wants to, God restores things, not just at their very best, but even better than their very best. Uh, and I think I was pretty much at my best at 35 physically and everything else as well. Uh, and, you know, that's what I'm looking forward to. But apparently that did speak to, to one young person. So here we are then, um, church scene investigation two. This is Jesus writing to some churches, um, young churches at the time. And at the moment we're looking, we're moving on to Smyrna and Pergamon. And <clears throat> we've given this one titled Dark Shadows. Really interesting kind of what, uh, topic. Why is that? Because we don't live in a world which is all nice and pretty and beautiful. We live in a world that was made pretty and beautiful, made perfect, made gorgeous, made amazing. But there's a battle going on. Let's just read this little bit. So, Revelations 2, 8. <clears throat> and we're going to read down to 17 and hope my voice holds up. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. And what the Spirit says to the churches, 
He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And so the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore, otherwise they will come to you soon and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. When I read that, I get excited what, Tony? (laughs) And I get encouraged. Do you know, Revelations is written to us to encourage us and to lift us up. And so even the difficult parts we need to look at and understand that God wants to speak to us. Jesus wants us to be encouraged. Maybe that's encouraged to put some things straight in our life, but it's still an encouragement. And for me, the Lord's review to these churches, his feedback to them, serves as a reminder that we are in a battle zone. We are in a battle zone. It's not a a war of the world, of the worldly kind. It's not a war with the world, but it's one, a war which is going on in the spirit, which is played out here on earth. And what he's saying in, in, in general summary, just in one sentence, is to be on your guard against dilution of the truth. A dilution with other philosophies or religions and a dilution through immorality. And that links to me very clearly straight through to Ephesians 6 where uh, Paul is, is writing and is just about to um, he's just about to go in to tell them about the, the armor of God. And Ephesians 6, 10 to 12 says this, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Just reminding us where our battle is, what our battleground is. It's not with people. It's with the forces of evil. It quite clearly says uh, in these churches, I know where you live. I know you live where Satan has his throne. We'll, we'll get into some of those bits and pieces in the middle in a minute. But let's just take a look at where we are. Um, there's our map of, uh, of the Middle East. There's Pergamon and Smyrna. Let's zoom in and see them. Okay, here they are. Let's just kind of blink this a little bit. Can we see where we are? Good, right. Smyrna. This is an Ionan city. It's a city on the Ionan Sea of Asia Minor. Uh, It's 40 miles to the north of Ephesus. You can perhaps see Ephesus underneath Crete, Ephesus 14. There's the little dot there. Um, I don't know what that scale is. That doesn't seem very far, but it is quite a long distance. Uh, A long distance 
for travel by those days as well. So it's about 40 miles north of Ephesus. And the angel of the church there receives this this letter. So the church there receives this letter uh, with some challenges in it. Number one challenge, they have a challenge of poverty. And yet Jesus says they are rich. So they are rich in something which isn't about material and physical poverty, obviously. They're challenged by slander. People are slagging them off in that place. They're slagging off the church, slagging off the Christians. And it's by those who think themselves better. It describes them as as they think they're Jews, but they're really the synagogue of Satan. Probably the same kind of challenges as we hear going on in Pergamum, just uh, just to the south of them. But also, there's something coming, a bigger um, challenge of imprisonment. They're going to be tested. Some of them are going to be thrown into prison. Tested about their faith, even unto the point of death, it says. And they might be imprisoned. And it talks about this thing about being imprisoned for ten days. Why why would imprisonment for ten days be uh, an issue? Well, This is where we start to really dig into some of the meaning here. And I have to say, if you struggle with understanding what Revelation says, these letters are a great place to start because they're a nice, small, contained thing. And you can start to pick out individual details and start to research what does that really mean. And so they're a good, small bit. Rather than try to understand the whole of of the book of Revelations in one go, start somewhere. And this is near the beginning, uh, and they're, they're quite clear messages, so, so have a go. And they were meant to be understood at the time as well, as well as understood by us now. Ten days. Numbers mean some things in the Bible. Don't get hung up on that. Don't start uh, getting into weird, strange uh, beliefs uh, and sects which use numbers to do things. But they do mean stuff. We know that, that three, the Trinity is a certain amount of completeness. We know that seven is fullness and completeness. We know, therefore, that 40, it it has a certain number as well. Ten, interestingly, talks uh, about the rule of God and the rule of man and a number of things all adding together. And it's it's understood that together, ten probably means something about authority and testimony. Their authority, I think, is being challenged in this place. And they're being asked to be in prison as a testimony to who is the real authority in this place. So they are going to be in prison, but there's a good reason behind that. Pergamum. Let's move on to Pergamum, uh, a city, uh, again, Asia Minor. It's, this is the seat of, of two dynasties, of Attalus and Emunines. I hate these words. Um, it's famous for a particular couple of temples. It's famous for the invention and manufacture of parchment. There we go, quite a historical place. There's a river called the Salinas which flows through it, and the Cetius runs past it. So there's, there's, lot, there's going to be lots of traffic going through. It's the birthplace of the physician Galen. I didn't know that until I started researching. How about that? Uh, and it had a great royal library. It also had a Christian church. So lots of, of, of knowledge and understanding in this place. Probably lots of trade as well. What are the challenges? The challenge is that the, uh, that the Spirit knows that they live in a place which is the realm of Satan's throne. There's, there's a territorial nature um, to satanic rule in this place. What does that tell us? Well, it means actually... That, that Satan thinks he rules there and he flaunts it. Okay? 
So the things of the enemy are flaunted in this place. Um, some of the things which we'll read about in a moment. Um, they're, they're flaunted and it's like the church feels under attack because of that. Is God is God's authority here? Is this true? Does God reign here in this place? So it's really kind of interesting, really. So Smyrna challenges poverty, but they're rich. Slander against them, bad talk against them. They're going to be imprisoned. Uh, and in Pergamum, this whole thing, this realm of Satan, persecutions and killings, we read in there, of people who've been martyred in this place. So not just a little bit of teasing at work, the kind of persecution that we usually get, but actually something really heavy and something really deep. The kind of persecution that we do see in our world, not in our country necessarily, but we see it across the world in various parts of the country, uh, various parts of the world where being a Christian is a dangerous thing to be. But there's also uh, idolatry going on. Uh, There's some worldly idolatry uh, creeping into this place, but it's actually deeper and heavier than that. There's a spiritual idolatry going on. And there's a general sense in, in which, because this is creeping into the church, and there are some people in the church there who are holding to some of these idolatrous beliefs, that, that there's an argument that maybe there's a sense of license rather than freedom. We sang earlier, you know, we, we sang, Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. That's true, isn't it? We believe that. But does that mean we're free to do whatever we want? No. You know, Paul talks about us being set, through from the, set free from the tyranny of sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. What does that mean? Well, God's righteousness, if that lives in me, if the Holy Spirit speaks to me, he's probably guiding me down the right path. And that path isn't about whatever I please and whatever feels good, that's okay. The Bible talks about that in other places as well. But it seems that these things, through these particular um, errors, can come into the church because of, of this understanding of, well, I'm free, so I can do whatever I like. That is what we call license, not freedom. You know, I've been set free, I've been rescued, therefore I've got a, a free pass to go and do whatever I want. That is not what the Christian faith says. That is not what the Holy Spirit says. That's not what we're saved for. We're saved into a kingdom. Okay, so this is creeping in. And and then there's there's this bunch of of people called the Nicolaitans um, who were professing Christians, but they sought to introduce into the church this false freedom, this false license, in regard in particular to a few things. And it's the same old stuff that has come up through the Bible in the Old Testament and so on and so forth. There's nothing new here, but it's in particular to food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. Now, if you read around what Paul says about this, he says, look, we know that idols are just, they're just, you know, the kind of your graven image, your carved thing. They've got no power. A carved bit of wood is just a carved bit of wood. But Paul says, in, in other places in the Bible, he says, we're not talking about stuff kind of like kind of given to them. We're talking about something more deeply spiritual. And he says in one point, uh, I'm not talking about idols, I'm actually talking about demons. So something, he says, I'm talking about the pagans who worship, the, you know, demons, demons from hell, the enemy, 
And, you know, the way in which they do that, they would sacrifice, um, they would sacrifice things, they would, they would make food offerings, they would, um, partake in sexual immorality, shall we say, um, was all part of this, this black, dark, false worship. And this is what the Nicolaitans were trying to bring in. And that really does abuse this whole understanding of the doctrine of grace. They were probably identical to those who held to the, the, the doctrine of Balaam. And we can read a lot of this all through Israel's history. Paul has a lot to say on these subjects. I, I, I could hijack this whole talk and talk about that. I'll give you some references in the notes. But you know there's lots of this around. I want to get to the nub of what it is Paul is really saying here. And he is talking about the challenges. Sorry, what Paul is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying here. Talking about the challenges there are to those churches. So those churches then, uh, and I think for us to understand what those challenges are to our churches today. And it is, I think, three things. This whole idea of idolatry, uh, this whole idea of liberalism, and this whole idea of immorality. Uh, and thinking about those in the spiritual sense and, and, and the demonic, satanic sense in which those things can creep in. And they were three challenges for all churches in nations. Uh, there are de- definitely a challenge for those churches in nations where, where, which are not following God you know, as, as a nation themselves. If we think about Israel in the Old Testament, there were times they were closely following God. And if you look at the times of the judges and and so on, you'll see this coming up and down and up and down when they were closely following God. And anybody who brought in Baal worship or any of that stuff, they were booted out. And then another leader would come along and and, and license would come back and, oh, it's okay, and I'm going to set up this Asher pole and and so on and so forth. And they, they walk away and then more of this whole other thing comes in, sexual immorality and everything, all comes in on the backwash of it. And that was a challenge for Israel and it remains a challenge for the kingdom of God, for the nation, if you like, of, of uh, Jesus today as we, as we are part of the church. So, the question then is, how do we stand firm for the gospel while still showing God's compassion into the world? Because it's very easy to get taken down this path of, of, of liberalism, of, of everything's okay, because, I'm, you know, you're free. And the argument always comes this way of, well, you're free. And, and you know, if you're free, then you can do what you want. Well, that's not what the Holy Spirit says at all. And and the other argument of, well, actually, if people love each other, love can't ever be wrong, can it? Well, love as defined by God can't be wrong. But love as defined by man can definitely be wrong. And so these are some of the challenges that they face and the challenges that we do face as well. And for me, it comes down to one absolute point. And, and it, it, I was kind of reminded it in this week in talking about um, what happens after death to this, this lovely class of year six. Because the questions they asked was, well, who decides who goes to heaven? Who decides who goes to heaven? It's not me. <laughs> I'm so glad it's not me. Um, it's not me. It's God who decides, isn't it? And only God knows what's in my heart. And only God knows what's in your heart. And so I can't judge whether you're going to go to heaven or not. I can encourage you and tell you the ways that I believe God has set out in his word about how we can be saved. And this is something I said to the class, you know, that that um, 
you know, after Jesus' resurrection and when the Holy Spirit came and the church was birthed and, and Peter stood up and talked about, you know, the, the, talked about Jesus and who he was and what he'd done and how they'd put him to death. And they all said, well, how can we be saved? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. There's only one way. Jesus talked about, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And we read, we read in, um, in the Bible about how at the end of time, and Jesus tells a story about sheep and goats. We will all stand before God. And he will judge who are the sheep and who are the goats. Not me, uh, not, not the Pope, not any high-flying worship leader or any of those things, but Almighty God. And so we need to understand where we stand with him. And so in all of these challenges that they have, in all of these challenges of, of, of do we eat food offered to idols, in, in, in the whole kind of liberalism of what we allow into our churches, in the whole area of sexual immorality, God is, is judging that, not me. So we need to understand that there is an absolute judge of all things. And what the world says about something actually might mean nothing. It's what God says about something that is, uh, that is important. But there's also encouragement. So there's the challenges. And there are challenges which are there for the church today. And we need to be clear on that. But there's also encouragement. There's some great encouragement. Because the Spirit says, continue to be faithful even to death and you will win the crown of life. There is something to be gained by remaining firm in the faith to which you were called. Remaining firm in the faith of belief in Jesus. Remaining firm that actually what, what we've been set free from is the tyranny of the law because that now is, resides inside of us. We talked about, you know, filling this house with your glory, that your house being filled with, with your love, well, as we sang this morning. Do we mean this building? No. What do we mean? Me. Me. You know, Scripture tells us that I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about his body himself. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. I want God's glory to live in me, God's love to live in me. And so, I am ruled by what's inside. And if God is inside me, if his law is written on my heart, I will follow what he says, not what the world says. So you can continue to be faithful and you will win the crown of life. That's life evermore. That's life everlasting. That's life in Jesus. And he who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Trying to understand that one is an easy one, but it's not an easy one. But at the end of time, we, we read further on that uh, those who are judged to be goats, those who are judged not to be followers of, of God, are thrown into the lake of fire, a second death. So what's that saying? Continue with God. Continue to be faithful. Continue to allow him to speak to you about what is good and what is wholesome and what is true. And live out of, of his, you know, live out of that. Uh, live out of that in your heart. And you don't need to fear judgment day. Interesting. Look at that parable of, of sheep and goats and work out what's good and what's bad. Is it about doing, is it about obeying rules? Or is it about our compassion to the people around us? Listen to the, the spirit. Listen to Jesus' words. You know, it talks about, um, 
it, it talks about the one who has the two-edged sword. If we read further on in that Ephesians passage, we read about the two-edged sword, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we read again in Revelations about this, 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 about this picture of Jesus in heaven, and he has a two-edged sword in his mouth, his tongue, his words are that two-edged sword. That's in Revelations 1. 16. Hebrews 4 says uh, that the word of God is like a two-edged sword that divides soul and spirit. What are God's words doing to us? They're dividing my soul. That's, 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 that's kind of my yearnings. My mind, my, uh, my will, my emotions, my understanding. It's dividing that and my spirit. What is my spirit saying? What is the spirit of God saying? about something. For me, that's separating man's understanding of what is good and God's word on what is really good. That's my man's wisdom in things versus God's deep wisdom in things. And so we understand grace and we understand freedom, but we also understand that God is also a judge, that God is also righteous, that God is also holy. And as the Holy Spirit, as God's Spirit lives and dwells in me, that's more and more and more what God wants to come out of me. This whole thing about uh, eating uh, food sacrificed to idols, we read elsewhere in Scripture too, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. And Paul does say... it's. You know, it's not a big issue, actually, if you, if you eat food that's been, been offered to an idol, because we know that idol has no power. But it could be an issue if a younger Christian or another Christian sees you do that and thinks, well, hang on, what are they doing? Now, we're not, we're called not to judge each other, but we're also called, you know, not to cause our brother to fall. And so in, in all of these things, it isn't just about what am I free to do. It's actually what is good and wholesome and what is true. And what encourages my brother or my sister to follow what is good and what is wholesome and what is true. So the encouragement then, I think, for that first bit is to listen to the Spirit. Listen to Jesus' words. Let that two-edged sword, that sword of his mouth, speak clearly to you. That You don't have to wait for it to come at a time when you've gone completely down the wrong track to get you back and and, and suffer all the pain and anguish and anxiety of that. But actually listen now and let the word of God keep you on the straight and narrow. Then he goes on to talk about some interesting things like hidden manna and stones and and new names and so on. I want to try and unpack that a little bit for you in in the time that I've got left. Because I think it's a balance between instead of, of eating that food which has been offered to idols, instead we can access a different kind of food. Hidden manna... In, in the Old Testament, um, could allude to, there was a, a golden pot in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, inside that golden pot, they put some of the manna. And they kept that, and that was there. And it was a sign of God's provision for them. A sign of God's provision. Not only God's provision that they would have some food, but miraculous provision in difficult, in, in, in unimaginably difficult and perilous circumstances. The whole of Israel in the desert needs to be fed. You don't just go down to Tesco's for that. Not even Tesco's extra. Something else had to happen. 
And so there, there is this, this provision of God. Food you can have for your spirit, not necessarily for your body. And if this whole point of food being offered to idols is a spiritual matter, not a matter of what you eat and what you drink, then let's think about where we really need to connect for our spiritual food. And that is direct in to God, into God's presence in that secret place in the Holy of Holies, which has been opened up for all of us through Jesus Christ. Let us connect with him and let him feed us. So if we think about uh, Israel in the desert. So actually, you know, Jesus talks about this a little bit when he meets this woman at the well in, in Samaria and he talks to her about water of life and hidden food. That's in John 4.31. So, because after he's talked to this lady uh, about, you know, who's drawing water, and, and, and he says to her, look, you know, instead, draw water from the well of life. In other words, draw water from him. You know, water that will leave you so you're never thirsty again. And then the disciples return, and they tell him, you know, Rabbi, you need to eat something. And he says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples say to one another, everyone... Has anyone brought him food? Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That hidden manner is about doing God's will. Let us seek and find what God's will is for our life, and let's do that. And I don't necessarily mean your specific calling in life. I mean what God calls us all to do. Big topic. We can perhaps talk about that. Um, in our small groups. So there's this hidden manna, this food, which is sustenance for our very being, our spirit, as opposed to food, physical, sacrifice to idols. But it's also about doing the will of God, living his life, allowing him to speak to us. And then there's this picture of white stone, of the white stone and a new name. And again, you can research some of these things. This is full of symbolism, so trying to understand it is important. Um, let's think about that. This white stone. In, in ancient courts, white stones were used to kind of vote on or indicate if somebody was guilty or if they should be acquitted. If you've got a white stone, you're acquitted. You're not guilty. If you've got a black stone, you're condemned. That's one picture. Think of another picture. In Rome, the winners of races or competitions were given a white stone to show that, A, they were the winner, but also to show they had entry into the festival banquet. Okay? So those two pictures, maybe, help us to understand that this white stone is about the fact that we are winners, that we have access into the banquet of God. These are all pictures of the end times and the afterlife, and yes, we are the victors, and we will be with God, and we will eat at his banqueting place after death. So it's all about that encouragement of persevering and keeping close to God, and you'll receive this white stone. Or it might be something else, kind of similar. Um, it might be a reference to the white stone, the diamond, which is on the chastion, which is the, the breastplate of righteousness worn by the high priest. And that breastplate has 12 stones on it, each of which is named for the 12 tribes of Israel. So what are we saying here? What might this be? Well, we're talking about God's righteousness. This is a sign of righteousness. God will recognize you 
as righteous if you keep to his will and if you follow his ways. And it'll have a name on it, and it won't be with the name of one of the tribes. It'll be a name that only God knows, and only you who receive it will know. Some people think that's the name of Christ. We call ourselves Christians. We bear this name of Christ. We call ourselves Christians. And so rather than maybe being part of the one, one of the tribes of Israel, we will know that we are gods because we have his name on that stone indicating victory, indicating righteousness, indicating the right to enter into the banqueting place of God. What does that all add up to? Obey the word. Listen to what God is saying. Do God's will. Overcome and you will win. You will gain entry to that heavenly banqueting place. How do we apply this? Let's, let's round this all up. I think don't get complacent is where I would start. Don't get complacent, but be on your guard. Be on your guard for what's going on around you. Um, so in 1 Peter, Peter writes in one of his letters, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for the easy meat. He's prowling around the, the outside of the flock of sheep looking for who we can pick off. Wolves do that. They look around and they, and they will actually take sheep away from the flock. Be on your guard. Look out for each other. But certainly don't be complacent. Be on your guard. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. That that's, he, you know, this is a spiritual battle we're in. So know that he's, he's prowling around. Be on your guard against false prophets and test spirits. We really do have to be careful about this stuff. We really do. Because you know, the, the, the kind of liberalism um, that they were suffering from in Pergamum can creep into our churches unless we stand guard against it. Stand firm. Stand firm in faith, in obedience, and in purity. In Ephesians, we're called to stand firm when we put on the armor of God. Not necessarily to go into battle and look for where the fight is, but actually, do you know what? Just to stand in where you've been placed and stand firm and know all of those bits of armor on on you. Know what they're for. Know what they speak to prophetically in your life. And yet we do need to follow God's ways. But because God has placed his law on our hearts, it's now not a matter of struggling and striving. It's a matter of allowing God to rise up within us and test spirits. We need to look at what people are saying. We really do need to look at what people, especially those who would set themselves up as being Christian and no more than you. Well, haven't you come across them? I'm a Christian and I know more than you. Now, I may be up here trying to explain the word of God to you and teaching you in that way, but I want you to actually question this stuff. I want you to go back to the Bible and look at it. I want you to do the research. I want you to be in your small groups and talk about it and understand it and root it out and say, does this fit in with the rest of what Scripture says? Because you will find a lot in Scripture about food sacrifice to idols and you should not do it. You will find a lot in scripture about sexual immorality and you should not do it. We could hijack the whole of this, this talk and the whole of this series talking about some of those things. But what should we do? Test it against what God says in his word. That double-edged sword 
that he's given us. We can hold that in our hands, in our Bible. We can have it on our phones, on our tablets, all these things. Test it. Use it. Use that sword of the Spirit and apply it into your life, not just to apply it to others. Start thinking about how you're living your life. Do I live my life according to God's word? Do you live your life according to God's word? Will you receive that crown? Will you have no fear of that second death? Will you know that you have that white stone, that victor's entry card that has the name, whatever that name is, whether it's it's Christ's name, the name that qualifies you to enter heaven. Is that on your stone? Will you inherit the kingdom? Will you inherit that crown? Will you have that righteousness? Is that new name going to live in you? Just one last story to close, and then we'll finish. A friend of ours, back in Royston many years ago, became a Christian. She got saved. And she went around telling everybody, her name was was Elaine, lovely lady, she went around telling everybody, I'm in the kingdom. I'm in the kingdom. She'd been through an alpha course, I think it was, and on the alpha day, she was saved. She was so excited. I'm in the kingdom. She had a new name. In the kingdom, Elaine. That's how we knew her. Bless her. Because she would tell everybody and anybody, I am in the kingdom. She was a new person, a new creation. That's what the Bible says about us. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Father God, just as we close, perhaps if you'd stand with me, because I think we should, we should acknowledge something here. I really do. Which is that if we are a new creation, if we have a new name, let's start living that new creation life. Father God, I want to thank you for saving me. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you went to the cross to die for my sin. My sin, the stuff, the horrible stuff in my life, my rejection of your rule, my rejection of your laws, my rejection of your love, my rejection even of your name. Lord Jesus, thank you. You went to the cross to die for that and you took on board all of my sin all of my rejection, all of my desires to live my way and not yours, all of my desires to think I know what's best for my life, all of my cleverness to think, well, that's okay, just that little bit will be all right. All of that you dealt with on the cross and you gave me, you gave me, Lord Jesus, a new name. You called me to be part of your family. You brought me out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Lord Jesus, I pray I pray again today you will fill me with your spirit, that you will allow me, because of what you've done inside of me, to access that secret manna, that food that comes direct from you, that provision that knows you, that I might do your will, that I might do your will, that I might stand firm, wearing all of that armor, but knowing and testing all that comes my way with that sword of the Spirit. Lord Jesus, help me to live your way, that I might access that kingdom, that crown, that righteousness that you have bought for me at such great cost. Lord, it costs you so much that how dare I think it's, it's, it's anything to be toyed with, anything to be messed around with. Lord, let me see what you're saying to these churches and let me live for you. Whatever might come, Lord, whether that's just life as I know it now or or times of testing or whatever it is. Lord, as a church, just fill us with your truth, with your spirit. Let us stand for you 
in this place. That might cost us some things, Lord. That might cost us some stuff. But Lord, don't let us be diluted. Don't let the world come in. Let us see real things for what they really are. Let us see the spiritual battles we need to stand in, Lord, and stand in them in victory. Lord Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.